Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, happy holidays and welcome to another episode of Bright Lights. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. We're coming to you live from our studio in North Minneapolis. And as always, it's another blessed day in the hood. Uh, just up front, some homework. Uh, go out to LaceyJohnson.com. Uh, subscribe to our channel. Uh, donate to the podcast. Support it financially. Uh, click the bell and get notifications. Uh, we also have an online store that have things like my bright lights mug here, which you can't see that very well, and T-shirts and all kinds of good stuff to help us uh, on the mission that we have here uh, to provide encouragement and information to people who are trying to achieve in life and tell them how to get uh, get that done. Uh, as always, I just let you know, I think we can be anything we want to be in life. And I want everybody out there to know that. Uh, and we're here not only to say that to you, but to show you how to do it. Uh, once again, the seasons, as you notice here, I have on my, you can kind of notice, Christmas colors. It's a uh, green jacket, green and red tie here. Uh, it's just in, uh, for the season. Now, uh, one thing that's kind of put in the damper on the season is that uh, I had an older brother, half brother, and but we say half, but he's really uh, like a, a whole brother, uh, passed away yesterday. And uh, uh, so dealing with that, uh, this is the second time in the past couple of months I've had a sibling uh, that passed away. Uh, I uh, said a month ago that I really consider myself blessed because it's been 60 years uh, before I've had a sibling pass away, and uh, uh, my faith will see me through this. So I want you to know that. Now, we got a very special treat episode for you. You might not think it's a treat, uh, but uh, I call it flipping the script. Uh, instead of me interviewing a guest, I am going to be the interviewee tonight and find out uh, Lacey, where did you come from? And what motivated you? And who's the wind under your wings? And things like that. Uh, and for that chore uh, of interviewing me, and I figured since we are flipping the script, uh, what better person to interview me than someone who's familiar with scripts? And so I have a past guest, a friend, business associate of mine that have that I've really talked him into doing this. I might regret it later on because I think he's a tough interviewer. Uh, Mr. Frank Torchia uh, of Torch Entertainment. Uh, Frank is a movie and TV producer and, like I say, a good friend. And uh, he's one of those – He's from, I think he's originally from Long Island, New York. Nice guy. I, I, I just like Frank. And I told you before uh, of all the traveling that my wife and I and my family have has done, uh, New Yorkers are the friendliest people I've ever met, believe it or not. People find that strange, and I got a lot of great, friendly New York stories to tell you. So, without further ado, because it's not about, uh, well, go out and look at episode 20, you find some more information about this great gentleman. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, my interviewer tonight uh, is Mr. Frank Torchia. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, Frank. Hey, Lacey, how are you? 
I am very well. Uh, I think we talked briefly. I know you're preparing that uh, great uh, Italian dinner for Christmas and the seafood yeah. and everything. And I know you've been shopping for your kid. And you're recently a proud grandfather. But guess what, Frank? It's not about you tonight. It's about turn... you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's about and, you. So, so Lacey Johnson, welcome to Bright Lights. And welcome you, to welcome to the studio. I'm excited to have you here today and 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 flip the script and and get everyone to know the Lacey that I've grown to know over the last few years. <clears throat> and so uh, welcome Lacey Johnson, businessman, entrepreneur, father, husband, grandfather, faithful servant to the Lord. Boy, you've uh, you got a lot of titles underneath your hat, don't you? Uh, yes, but their titles and the most important one, I think, is just servant, uh, uh, Frank. And that's, I think, that's the greatest thing you can be. And I think it's hard to, well, it's impossible to be a great leader without being a great servant. So uh, that's true. I take, that that's with, true. I, I, take, I take pride in that. Of course, my uh, wonderful wife, my two sons, and uh, the joy of my life, my heart, uh, my young grandson, Aiden. So. Uh, I've been truly blessed. Fantastic. Well, well, let's uh, let's let's go back to Christmas past. Okay. <laughs> and uh, let, <laughs> let's go back to to how Lacey uh, grew up uh, with his family and his siblings, and um, and so we're going to go on a journey, so to speak. That's how kind of I want to kind of take the the audience and the people that maybe just know of you but don't know you. So how you got to where you are today and the foundation that was laid from your parents and your grandparents and how you were brought up that set the tone and uh, to, to got you to where you are today. So, so let's talk a little bit about now I'm an only child. So it's a little bit different what I'm going to ask you because I had no one to blame anything on. Right. So right, how right. was it growing up with nine siblings? Well, the first thing is I think about is just the camaraderie and the love and support. Uh, second thing, especially looking at my grandson, I always had someone to play with. Uh, we were competitive, uh, lots of fun, uh, know it all. But once again, having some great parents. And it's just, I tell the people, uh, I had a perfect childhood. And it wow. involved my siblings and uh, my nine siblings, uh, my mom and dad. I uh, grew up around, what, eight great eight grandparents. And I even knew my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. Uh, I remember my great-grandfather, I tell people, used to call me Joe Lewis. I never figured out why he called me that. Uh, but, you know, when I, when I grew up, when I was growing up, uh, we, in the culture I grew up in, uh, we dare not ask questions of uh, grown-ups and the elders. So yeah, I never be did seen ask and not heard. So let me ask you a question. There was a book called The Birth Order. I don't know if you ever read it or you heard about it. Where are you in The Birth Order on the nine? Okay, I'm the middle child and the middle son. And okay. so I, I, I guess somewhere along the line, I think people have theorized I've always had a lot of attention. Uh, I think, too, that, uh, you know, I had two brothers that grew up in the house and six sisters. So uh, the six sisters was kind of great because uh, they showered a lot of love and attention on you and help you out. And, and they taught you about uh, how to relate to 
uh, ladies and females and things like that. So uh, I'm the middle child and middle son. Awesome. What did, what did dad do for a living? My dad was a carpenter. And uh, he uh, basically uh, remodeled homes. Uh, uh, him and my mom both worked for a family that was uh, in the oil businesses, and he took care of the homes and and remodeling all the different properties that they had. And my mom was a helper, and she helped take care of the uh, raise the children and things like that. And, and just uh, we, by the way, we ended up being very close. I mean, we all like families. I know down south. People have this stereotype of down south that we didn't get along and racist, but we just was one big family, white, black, and it didn't matter. And we had a great time. Well, so mom and dad both worked outside the house? Uh, yes. Until uh, originally, and once again, as time went on, and uh, I, I guess we got more financially stable and we could afford it. My mom to start taking some time off, as a matter of fact. And you might ask me this later on, but uh, one of my great childhood memories was when it, when my mom got to the point where she she was off on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I'd come home from, I think, junior high, high school and the house would be warm. You could smell food. And I mean, that was just a great childhood memory. And my mom was just a hard working, smartest person I ever met in my life. That's awesome. So were the were the kids natural? Were, were you you and your siblings? Were you naturally self-sufficient to kind of care for yourselves and the olders, making sure the youngers did stuff that, you know, whether it's chores or homework? How was how was that kind of? relationship having the siblings kind of well mom and dad's at work coming uh walk us through that yeah well yeah well from day one uh the expectation was that we'd be self-sufficient and we'd take care of ourselves uh but once again uh given six sisters my mom it was three girls three boys three girls and so during my formative years uh each one of the older girls had a younger sibling a younger boy to take care of and so uh, my uh, middle older sister took care of me. And so that was kind of nice. He established those relationships. But as far as self-sufficiency, yeah, that was the expectation from day one. And uh, that's one of the best uh, values that was instilled in me as a child. So did you, you all uh, go into, was church and uh, oh, faith yeah. important growing up in the household? Yeah, in fact, it was the most important thing. And, you know, a lot of times I know people out there uh, who, probably not familiar with church they think of you as being some type of zealous but you know it gave us a very uh moral compass on life it gave us a perspective on life where we didn't think we were the center of the universe and everything is surrounded around us uh and i think uh on a practical level if you think about it going to church uh, every sunday uh and the preacher almost always seemed to know what happened in your life the week before uh, so he would do like a recap of the week before and put that in perspective from a spiritual way. And then he'll give you a, a message to go forward with the next week. But I think the most important thing about it is that uh, that was there's nothing in life that not covered by Scripture and uh, sure. the teaching of Jesus. And and uh, so when I left home uh, five days after high school graduation, I had all those teachings in me. And I was confident that uh, I could tackle uh, anything the world had brought my way. And that has proven to be true. I can't think of anything that I've come across in life uh, that the scripture had and had not prepared me for. And I should not just say the scripture because uh, behind the scripture were my mom and dad and my 
uh, grandparents and my elders and deacons and reverends. What, 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 did everyone live close? How does how was the family unit between grandparents and and aunts and uncles? Were, were they like I'm? A, I grew up in an Italian family. Everyone was like within a, a house or two right, on right, where right, we right, all right. lived. Right, right. And so when we all got, to, you know, we got together for big Christmas dinners and, and all those, the Sunday feast at grandma's house. How was that growing up? Were, were, were everyone close by to kind of all get together? And how was that uh, growing up with the extended family? Because that was important to me. I wanted to oh, see yeah. if, if yeah, how, how that wasn't, how, how you, that affected you growing up. I, I think that's a very good uh, point. Uh, I think the extended family was very important. Uh, my grandmother, uh, up until the fourth grade, uh, my grandmother lived across the field, and we could walk there in about 10 or 15 minutes. And then uh, when I got to the fourth grade, we bought a bigger house across the road from my grandmother, and uh, it was just perfect. Uh, I had My dad had, uh, what, 17, 18 sisters and brothers. So Wait, wait, um, wait. Time out. Time out. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're one of nine and your dad is one of 17 or 18 18, 18 yes 18 so yeah. oh my goodness gracious yeah yeah family reunions and aunts and uncles and a yeah. lot of you know don't you know uh the scene but not heard making sure that the, yeah that community there was nothing you can do that didn't get back to somebody in the family <laughs> Exactly. Well, and it's just not family. Uh, I grew up in a small town where basically all the adults knew each other. Uh, and, and so anywhere you went, someone knew who you were. And uh, we were talking about this the other day, and I really, really appreciate this. Uh, when I grew up, adults stuck together with the, uh, when it came to the children, and they all had the same basic philosophy in the, towards children. So uh, you were always surrounded by the same type of adults. Uh, who had the same attitude towards you and uh, who had the freedom at any time to discipline you. And, and so really it was just, it, it really boiled down to us kids versus them. But, but, and it seems like there was a whole lot of them. There was a lot more of them and they had a lot more power. And yeah, they were a lot bigger also. And they were a lot bigger, but you know, the great part about that, they were such great people that you just felt blessed to have them in your life. There's probably also a lot of love, Lacey. Yes. A lot of oh, love yeah. with, with, with so many uh, aunts, uncles, I'm guessing a whole lot of cousins with all those aunts and uncles that you had as well. Yeah. Uh, there had to have been a lot of love. And, um, and so that's how I, I grew up. My mom was one of eight. My dad had a sister. And, and so I had, I'm an only child, so I had a lot of aunts, uncles, and cousins and always felt a lot of love from there. I said, oh, it must have been hard growing up as an only child. I, I mean, I had cousins that were like my brothers and sisters. So you must've had dozens and dozens and dozens of cousins and, and, yeah. uh, you know, you know, 36 aunts and uncles, if they're all married, boy, that, and that's just on dad's side. What about mom? How many siblings did mom have? Well, actually mom, uh, had, she was, as far as herself, she was the, my grandmother's only child, but she had step uh, uh, sisters and brothers about okay. six or seven. And so basically I, on her side, I had seven aunts and, uh, and uncles. Uh, and given uh, that my her father had remarried uh, uh, my aunts and uncles, some of them was the same age as I was. And so that was kind of <laughs> neat also. Uh, and we went to school together. And, you know, when I had football games and basketball games, I could stay with them. But, you know, as far as the extended family, I think, uh, that was so important to me 
Uh, and I feel sorry for kids that don't have that. And yeah, they made a fuss over you. And and to be honest, most of the time they save you from your parents discipline you. And and uh, uh, I just remember a lot of small things like my grandmother. Every time I visit her, we'd visit her. She'd give us a quarter or uh, fifty cents or something. And you know, for a little kid like us, that was those were all fun memories. But the key thing was the family. And sometimes I think. And I was just discussing this when we were gathered in Houston for my sister's funeral. You know, sometimes I think the fact that we succeeded uh, and and went off to college and went we just scattered all over the country. Let me just put it that way. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'm not sure that uh, there was some unintended consequences as a result of that. I mean, and, and in fact, uh, we might talk about it later. I ha I had a job in Washington D.C. Uh, when my uh, son was born, my youngest one, oldest ones were born. And one of the reasons I decided to move back to the Twin Cities, because I realized the importance of growing up around your cousins and your aunts and uncles. And and uh, I just love to see, and my sister, you should see them. They they just make a fuss over my grandkids, my kids, and each other kids and things like that. And I fear that we're missing that. And then once again, I see my grandson, the way he grew up. I, I took him out to the play park the other day, and I'm sitting there realizing, you know, he doesn't know any of these kids here. And it was kind of sad to me because, you know, I go out the door. And in fact, I don't think I've ever been one when I was a child around a whole bunch of children. I didn't know who they were. And yeah, so I it's that's, yeah. It's, it, that's got to be that's going to be challenging, especially today and mm -hmm. uh you know, there's so much isolation and going on, but we'll, we'll get into a little bit yeah, about we'll that. So I still want to stay backwards before we get to talk about your, your wonderful grandson and, and where we are today. So, so obviously you, you, there's a, there's a plethora of people that you can pick who has significantly impacted your life, obviously mom and dad, but other than mom and dad, who are the, who are the most influential people in growing up? Well, I think, uh, the elders in the church and my grandfather was a, was a head deacon. So he was a very influential uh, teachers. I mean, I had the best teachers in the world. I mean, just, I mean, I know what a great teacher looks like. And that's when I go into some of these schools now, I, I'm just disappointed in what I see. Uh, I had, uh, I mentioned one uh, elderly uh, guy in particular, friend in particular, about five years older than we were. And what I loved about that, and this is part of my blessing as a childhood, uh, he took time with all us, us young, younger uh, boys, and he taught us how to do things, and he helped us build toys, and he, he was just the most patient person I ever known, Dr. Henry Murphy. Uh, he's a retired uh, principal down in Mississippi right now. Uh, taught, and, and, and I was fortunate uh, that my lifelong best friend, uh, was also my neighbor and his nephew. And so he spent a lot of time with us, just giving us directions in life and teaching us how to do things, taught us how to play chess. And and to this day, uh, if there's one person uh, besides family that I visit when I go home, it's uh, Dr. Henry Murphy because of the value that he gave to us. And, you know, sometimes when I'm looking at some of the issues that's confronting a lot of these communities, I think about those type of things that shaped me and led to me, whatever success you want to call it, uh, is just a mentor, just an elderly guy who is just a yeah. great 
mentor for me. It, and that's, that's, that's so important today because a lot of people don't have that. Uh, you talk about childhood memories and it, it sounds, oh my gosh, you have so many childhood memories to pick from. So if you were to, and if you were to pick a childhood memory that you go back to as in a reflection of, of joy, what would that be? Well, that's the family ones I talked about when my mom uh, was off on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I came home, but uh, just, you know, uh, playing, just playing basketball with the guys, uh, working with my dad, uh, painting. Uh, I just remember one time, and, 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 you know, when I was younger, before I, I think I started working with my dad when I was about 12, 13 years old, and he was just the greatest gentleman. But before that, I, I was working in the fields for summer, and just the joy of finally working with my dad and and, and remodeling. Uh, I remember one time we had a uh, ceiling in his old antebellum home, and, and there were so many little nuances about it. It took us all day to do the ceiling. And so those are the type of memories that I have. And just my classmates, I mean, uh, the smell of lunch in the schools, uh, just uh, how friendly we all got along and supported each other. I mean, I, it, it was an idyllic, a little small town area. And, you know, growing up in an environment and a culture uh, where people had morals and ethics, I mean, I didn't know liars growing up. I didn't know thieves growing up. I didn't know murders growing up. I mean, we just all, in fact, the one liar that we did know, he lied for entertainment. and We all knew he was lying. It was a joke. And then, you know, would you say that, you know, you know, especially today and, you know, the divorce rate again is skyrocketing in every every community. I don't care if you're black, you're white, Hispanic. I mean, the divorce rate is at the highest ever. And, you know, back when we were young, you know, divorce was not prevalent. There was always a father in the home. There was always dad to come home with, you know, so how, how did that, do you think that had a, a, a bigger impact that maybe most people don't understand? Growing up, knowing that your dad was there, he was the, you know, mom saying, wait till your dad gets home or, you know, and, uh, but knowing that he loved you and uh, talk a little bit about that. Cause I don't, I, I don't, I really believe most people don't understand the value of having the dad at home and what that does to the family unit not only for the current generation, but for future generations. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, a little correction. My mom wasn't the type to say, wait till dad get home. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't mom. <laughs> In fact, uh, my dad might have spanked me once when I was about five years old, but my dad never. But mom, okay. that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, just have, well, let me put it this way, uh, Frank. Um, I had two parents. I had a support system of uh, older people that I knew that loved me and cared for me and wanted the best for me. I mentioned I had a mentor. I mentioned I had great friends. I mentioned the morals and ethics of the environment that I grew up in. And where I'm getting to, Frank, look, I don't know. I can't imagine what it would be like not to have my dad in the house. And I uh, I just strongly believe, and um, I probably looked this up, that there's a natural instinct in us to want to be around our natural parents. And so I just can't imagine between having your, both parents in your house, the support system, 
uh, the faith part of it. Uh, Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I grew up uh, a Catholic. I'm a non-denominational Christian now. And my kids, we went to school, we went to Sunday school on Sunday, went to church. We went, I had a men's Bible study. It wasn't as prevalent as, you know, I went, you know, I'd go to Ash Wednesday. We go to, you know, mass on Sundays. What was it for you growing up? And what, what, what did, what did, what was God to you? When, if you had to reflect on growing up with God in your heart, what, what, what would be a word that you would associate with that? Uh, someone who looked over and after me, uh, and I don't want to get overly dramatic, but uh, I just always felt uh, an angel was walking with me uh, when I was growing up. And that's uh, gives you a certain confidence uh, in life. And I grew up around very spiritual people. And I don't I could tell some stories. These are the very spiritual people. And you came to have an appreciation for the spiritual world. Uh, even as I was going to school and supposed to have been a smart guy and taking trig and physics and chemistry and stuff. I hated uh, you. Was... I hated guys <laughs> like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. Uh, wow. Uh, because I grew up around spiritual elders, that was some things they showed me you wouldn't believe. And uh, so, so it sounds like, you know, as we, you know, you, our lives are pieces of a puzzle Yep. and, and our foundation of, as we grow up, the strongest pieces of the puzzle stay with us. Yep. And it sounds like uh, mom, dad, and God played such a huge role and which is different what's going on today. There's not a lot of moms and dads that are have, take an active role in their parents. Not say they don't, but it's not prevalent as it used to be when you and I were growing up. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we put, you know, we put faith in God and with society today taking God out of everything, it sounds to me like those are elements of your foundation, the building blocks that help be Lacey become who Lacey is today. Would that be accurate? Uh, that would be accurate, uh, more than accurate, as a matter of fact. And, you know, I was always, I think, kind of blessed where uh, if a life lesson uh, came across uh, me or my heart or whatever, I read something or saw something, I just automatically adopted it, uh, whether it's uh, build your hope in things eternal and not put your hope in things material uh, whether how you treat everybody, whether to have faith and confidence uh, that it is better to give than receive and and, and just know that the blessings that uh, I receive as a result of doing that, uh, thinking about times when it was challenging, even as an adult, it became challenging because you're going to get challenged on your beliefs and your faith. And, and to be honest, when you're young, I mean, when I got to college, it was I was there to sow some wild oats and things like that. And, <laughs> and, and, so wait. So Okay. You grew, you kind of grew up in uh, in the South when maybe times when it was a little bit more stressful in uh, especially with the with some with some of the divide that was going on back then. Not to the degree it is today, but how, how was that with maybe uh, you know with all the with Martin Luther King and 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 growing up down there? How, did, did tell me about how that impacted you and. In, the, in your community and then transitioning from the small community to university and, and, and what was that like for you? 
Well, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I I've never done stress in my life. I've never done fear in my life. I've never done worry in my life, and maybe because of some of those type of things. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, and I tell everybody this, and they find it hard to believe, uh, even though I grew up down south, Jim Crow South, during the Civil Rights era, and then let me put it this way, uh, there were uh, child talk and there was adult worldly talk. And the child environment that I grew up in was mainly adults teaching me how to be the best person I can be, uh, how to deal with the world and the challenges and how to just process what was going on. So on the one hand, I had those close to me uh, really putting in perspective what I was seeing in the civil rights movement and what was going on uh, 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 for us to rise and things like that. And I think uh, I've been blessed because, once again, being Christians, uh, they did not exhibit any hate or fear or anything either and it was just a wonderful beautiful time yes that's i mean once again it's scriptural i mean there's nothing new under the sun and uh that's how the adults uh taught me when i was growing up so i i really didn't experience any of that i just had a great time i know that uh and, and once again i grew up in a segregated uh neighborhood and went to segregated school but you know that didn't didn't matter to me uh all i knew is that uh, I had I was surrounded by a lot of smart people, a lot of hardworking people, a lot of great people, uh, I, and and I was happy with where I was. So I never really paid much attention to that. And and but once again, uh, probably counter to the stereotype, never had any issue with when any white person or any racial issue whatsoever. Personally, myself during the whole time, and I tell people, uh, even growing up down south, to this day. I have not heard the N-word come out of a white person's mouth down south. I've heard it in Minnesota. I've heard it in Boston. I've heard it in Rhode Island. And I've got nothing but respect. In fact, I even go even further. I've never even seen a white person disrespect a black person where I grew up at. But now it's Natchez. And if you go do some research on Natchez, Mississippi, it got a, a unique kind of history, though. So uh, that never bothered me. We were always confident in what we were doing. We always knew we were good at what we did. And, and, and to this day, what other people thought, I didn't care what white folks thought or anybody thought. We knew who we were. And uh, So how was that transition from a small town to University of Minnesota? Well, uh, it was a smooth transition. I actually had come up uh, to Minneapolis during the summer after my sophomore year in high school. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like cooking and driving, Frank. I always knew I could do that even before I did it. And I always knew that I could adopt, adapt to any situation. So I was never intimidated. It's just another, you know, when I moved, came to Minnesota, I went to a big city, even today, anywhere I go, I'm just going somewhere else. And there's nothing intimidated or anything about it. So it was a rather smooth transition. I think it helped that I had family up here, sisters. Uh, when I started University of Minnesota, I had two sisters going there at the time. So uh, it was just a smooth transition. And you have to understand too, uh, uh, at that age, I'm looking to sail across the horizon to see the world and things like that. And that was all part of that kind of attitude. And I've always been blessed to think uh, I could do anything I wanted to do. And I was just excited about coming here and getting it done. And what did, what did you major in? 
English. I started off in pre-med, and uh, I, uh, I I had a friend of mine. I, you remember I mentioned these physics and chemistry classes in high school, but I had a I had a classmate who would put novels inside his chemistry book, and we'd be sitting in class, and he'd be sitting there, he'd sit there reading his novels. Long story short, there he'd make C's in, in, in chemistry, but on the standardized test, he scored as almost as high as we did. And I'm like, he must be getting something out of those books. And I, I told myself, whenever I got to college, I was going to force myself uh, to take classes that made me read and English literature classes because he was getting something out of them. And then for, fast forward in the head, I think my uh, sophomore, junior year, I took a class on John Milton. And I couldn't understand a word he was saying. Uh, but uh, the Professor Wright, I think he was the chairman of the English department. He was our instructor. And the best thing he did was made us learn the first 26 lines of Paradise Laws to memorize them. And in order to memorize them, I had to understand what it was saying. And once I understood what it was saying, I just got blown away uh, by uh, Milton. And that's what probably took the scale. But I had always been interested in English and literature. Well, let me put it this way, Frank. I have always been interested in every subject. And uh, I started out with uh, Edgar Allan Poe and transitioned to some of the poets, Conte Cullens and and E.E. And, and e. Cummings and, and Keats and, and people like that. And then I, I transitioned to Charles Dickens. So I was always interested. I always loved reading. Uh, my mom bought a uh, eight-volume encyclopedia, I think, when I was in the eighth grade. And by the eighth grade, I couldn't go to the end of the uh, volumes and find a page I hadn't read. So I just always had that thirst for knowledge. And so that's what I eventually transitioned to English and eventually that got me into tech writing and eventually that got me into computers and engineering. Awesome. Awesome. And where, uh, where did you meet your wife? Uh, <laughs> I met my wife at a disco <laughs> called the Fox Trap. And we laugh about that now. She's the fox that trapped me, but uh, <laughs> I uh, we'll put that on private, we'll just edit that <laughs> yeah, later. Yeah, we, we have, I have studio, my tech guy, uh, edit that out. But you know, uh, I was, I was always, I never very seldom went out on Saturday nights, but I'd go out like early Saturday evenings and make sure I make it back home by seven o'clock because I had some shows I watched. So one evening, I think about 5 30 or 6 o'clock i walked into this little disco and they were before they even got going and my wife was sitting there and and she was at the time she was a model and had a cute little afro and things and uh, had such a nice disposition about her and I, once again i was by that time i was in a fraternity we have a lot of banquets and things and i'm like you know what she's nice and she'd be nice <laughs> to take the banquets and 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 she just had a great personality and to be honest i've always been kind of partial to uh, Southern country girls, and she fitted the bill, and we just got along very well, and had a lot of stuff in common. So that's why how I met her, started dating her. Uh, well, I didn't really just started talking to her because you know I wasn't interested in dating, but uh, some of my friends and frat brothers saw it right away. They said, "Yeah, they said, you're gonna settle down with her." And I'm, nah, <laughs> so here, here I am, uh, 40 years later, and we're still together, and been married for 34 years, and, and that's and raised awesome. Two sons, yes. And so, uh, so now we're 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 moving along the journey, and we're uh, we we went to we're still a little bit in Christmas past. We're almost to Christmas present. Okay. As as we uh, as we as we're doing this little story and journey. So tell me about the first job you got out of college. 
uh, the first real job I got out of the college, once again, was tech writing. Uh, my senior year uh, at the U, I read about a job opening for a tech writer in Hennepin County uh, Information Technologist uh, Department. And I applied, and you had to take a test. And here's the thing, Frank. I scored the highest of the test of anybody. Wow. But I, but I didn't get the job. They gave the job to four this white female hiring manager gave the job to four white females. Now, I'm like, wait a minute. And you have to understand, and we'll get into this. To me, whatever the obstacle, doesn't matter to me whether it's racism or uh, uh, a car isn't running, I'm out of gas, I don't have any money. And life is like a chess game to me. And I'm like, you know what? I should get one. Of, I should have had one of these jobs. So I ended up suing Hennepin County and winning, and they gave me the job. And uh, I never. And, and, and you know, one of my things in life is that I don't even hang on to that stuff. I, it's just I'm not emotional about stuff. It's just you know, this is what I got to do to get what I want, and I'm just goal oriented, and I don't personalize anything. So I got there, uh, Hennepin County. And we can get into this later. And I started writing about the sheriff warrant database and computers and things like that, and. I've just always been the type of person, uh, if I can read it for myself and understand, I don't want nobody explaining it to me. Right. And and so that's when I decided to go back to school and take computers and computer programming. Okay. And so so when you go from a technical writer, you went to computer programming. What's what's the next career path that led uh, that you went to? Yeah. So the interesting thing, I, I, when I finished that. Uh, Brown Institute in Computer Programming. I had made up my mind I was going to take the summer off. I don't know why. I can't understand it. But you know, uh, but I ran into a, a fraternity brother at a grocery store, and he said, send me a resume. Long story short, ended up becoming a tech writer at Control Data. And But I always wanted to be a software engineer. And uh, I was working in test engineering. and uh, all, There was only one software engineering in the engineering department. Everybody else mostly electrical, a few mechanicals and things like that. Long story short, it just so I kept bugging my boss and control data was the greatest company because all, all you had to do was say I wanted to do something and people helped you do it. And so I kept bugging my boss about being a software engineer. The software engineer in in the department quit and uh, abruptly, by the way. And my manager, as soon as he quit, my manager came to my desk and threw this big thick listing on my desk and said, you want to be a software engineer? Here you go. And uh, I just remember, you know, at Brown, we we studied what they call higher level languages where, you know, you just print statement. Long story short, uh, this was a, an assembly uh, language job uh, where you're dealing with the hardware. You got to know everything that, you, that the hardware is doing. And I just remember that first day he gave it to me. At the same time he gave it to me, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm standing there with all these electrical engineers and trying to figure out there's a problem with this program, how we fix it. And I just remember, you know, once again, God sent angels to you. Uh, there was an electrical engineer there named Dave Satnan, and I, I'll mention his name because he, he has a lot to do with my uh, foray into technology. And he, I just remember him saying, oh, that, the problem is the interrupt trap. And that's what he talked about. Like, I didn't have the slightest idea what an interrupt <laughs> trap was. Uh, but here's the thing. And, you know, as we talk about it, I think a lot of life is about your perspective, your attitude, and how you react to things. And I knew I didn't know what in the heck was going on there. But what I said to myself, and I just said, and this is honest truth, I said, you know what? For the first six months, people are going to wonder, how in the heck did this guy get this job? But I promised myself, I said, I'll put up with that. 
And in six months, I'm going to be the best in the world at this. And so everywhere I went, I took the listing, I read it and did my research to figure out what I was doing. And that was just my attitude. And that's how I got, that's how I got started in software engineering. And we were building something called the standard airborne computer uh, for the fighter jets, F-4s through the F-18. And I was doing that, some of that micro coding and firmware coding. We had a, something called the eight-place environmental test mo monitor that I was in, in charge of, where we put these computers in environmental chambers and recycle them up and down with the temperatures, we vibrated them and things like that. Uh, we were, wrote, was, there was a disk operating system that was a part of it. So I just had an opportunity to learn a lot of great stuff and not just the technology, but it, these were defense systems. And what I, and this is the blessing that I had. Uh, the uh, Department of Defense had standards and ways of doing things that took into account all the various problems and issues that they've had in the past and how to avoid them. And so I got a real great training in just development of software where I was able to, when I moved over to the commercial world, uh, that was a piece of cake. In fact, when we were doing uh, military systems, we considered the commercial world a bunch of hackers, you know. Because we, <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, our stuff had to work. I mean, if my stuff didn't yeah. work, uh, 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 a fighter jet would crash or a missile would end up in the wrong place or a torpedo would end up in the wrong place. Uh, we'll get back to the uh, 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 station and we got the wrong pictures, reconnaissance pictures. So uh, quality and getting things right, I think having that foundation in engineering really helped. Awesome. And so... Um... You transit at some point. You transitioned to say, "I want to be start my own company." Yep. So, what was that? Was that always in the back of your mind, wanting to, "Hey, I, I want to do something for myself," or did something spark your interest that kind of said, "Hey, this is what I've been doing. Now, this is what I want to do." Well, I, I think there was a couple of levels to that. Uh, first of all. Once again, writing a disk operating system and Bill Gates and MS-DOS and Microsoft. I'm like, I want to do it. I want to start my own Microsoft. So that, that was one thing. And then uh, I guess the second part of that, I've always and perhaps just intuitively uh, appreciated uh, the free enterprise system and starting companies and creating wealth in our communities. And I've always uh, looked at that as the best way of going about it and technology companies. I wanted to, uh, from a personal level, create a technology company, but on another level, and probably more important level, uh, start creating businesses in our communities so we can provide jobs and, and opportunities and knowledge to the people in the community. And then we might get into this a little later because it, it is a risk. Uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up with among men who put their life on the line for me. And uh, I just figured to take a risk in business and financially, you know, that's not like risking your life for. And uh, I just considered. No. Go ahead. I was gonna say. So when you when you made that decision to say, okay, I'm gonna leave a, a nice salary job and benefits and uh, and say, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna live the American dream. I'm gonna start my own company. Hey, honey. You know, I love you. But I'm giving up my salary, and it's gonna. We're gonna go into business for ourselves. How was that conversation like? Well, I think by that time I had built up a certain amount of 
uh, uh, confidence and faith uh, on the part of my wife since I've lost a lot of it since though. And then uh, I was uh, too, perhaps too young and gung ho to really appreciate the risk. Uh, but, and then, you know, at the time I could financially afford it. And, and so I think from that standpoint, and, and my wife has always had a pretty good career also. And so she shared my goals and my dreams and was willing to support me in it. And uh, so that's, that's, I think that's what helped is that she supported me uh, morally, spiritually, financially, and everything else. And uh, that's what made it a lot easier, but it was uh, risky area. And, and, and by the way, uh, at that time, and, and, and this is what age do, does to you, uh, you have to understand that I thought I could do anything I wanted to do. And I had all kinds of opportunities. I didn't realize that as you got older, <laughs> those opportunities shrink and uh, uh, things that you thought, you thought you had everything under control. Could no one tell you anything. I know I can get this done. And uh, but, you know, uh, life, God, or whatever, have a way of humbling you, which is good, and providing wisdom to you. So I was too young to understand what I was really getting into, Frank, is I guess what I'm trying to say. It, it perhaps <laughs> my wife was, too. Now, were, uh, were, your, were your boys born at this time? Uh, when, you made you, when you started your first company, or did they come, they come on, come yeah, about man. later? Well, yeah, that's a good one. My oldest son was born. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I explained earlier that I, I was out in D.C. for a while, uh, and then they brought me back to Minneapolis Control Data, and I worked there for a while. Uh, we were building the air reconnaissance system. They sold us off to another defense contract. A long story short there, instead of moving down to Orlando, uh, I had, a, uh, I had a, a fraternity brother classmate uh, who had started a small computer company, and I used to just, when I was in corporate world, I just go over in the evening and just help him, just volunteer to help him get some things done. And uh, when it came time for me to go to Orlando, I didn't want to go there. Once again, I wanted my uh, children to grow up around each other. He just offered me to run his company and give me ownership in that. And that was my first uh, okay. small business ownership and first uh, CEO, chairman of the board uh, type of position. Well, that's exciting news. That was that had to be uh, to be offered that uh, had to be, uh, you know, kind of a, a proud moment for you. And not it's a, not a, an a culmination, but coming from humble beginnings, hard work, close family, aunts, uncles and cousins uh, going to church, going to school and going from working for someone. And now you're the CEO and president of this company and the foundation that was laid from all of that kind of helped supported your shoulders. Cause without that strong foundation, you know, it could have been, you know, I think for me anyway, that, you know, all the businesses that I've started have similar experiences to you. And uh, the first company was, uh, was pretty successful and it was exciting uh, it was also challenging. You know, we talked a little bit about this before when, hey, I'm going, I'm getting the salary, and but I'm now gonna, I'm the president and CEO and everyone's got to get paid before me. And if there's not enough revenue, hey, honey, you know, yeah, call yeah, the mortgage yeah. company, uh, tell them we're going to be late this month. Uh, but you, you, you bet on yourself. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like that, that, was, uh, that was something that, you, you know, it wasn't even, you know, chips are all in. I'm betting on myself. If someone's going to do it, it's going to be me. And 
And I, yeah. I, I definitely feel that about you. Yeah, and that's exactly how I feel. But once again, uh, at that stage in life, just about everything that happened was like, yeah, this is what's supposed to happen. And 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 and, and I've always been pretty even keel. Uh, I don't get down and I don't get up. I'm I'm just pretty even keel. And yes, I'm in this thing, but this you know just another day at work type of thing. Uh, the uh, financial part of it is is that now, of course. You got to focus on bringing in the revenues and things like that, and that is uh, difficult. But it was also exciting in the fact that, uh, uh, as the uh, head of the company, I'm out in the business community and I'm meeting bankers and and factoring companies and things like that. Because sometimes we had to do that to, to to finance the deals that we were working on. I'm meeting all kinds of uh, highly skilled technologists, and, and and I guess even more. Uh, rewarding than that, uh, we were providing jobs for the people in the community. And I just remember, uh, especially at the first company that I was at, we had an administrative assistant and she had, she was a single mom and she had our budget down to the penny. And, uh, but once again, it was the first time that I, you know, I just remember some Friday evenings I had a choice and these are tough choices, but it, it was an opportunity for personal and professional development. I had a choice of even giving, uh, either giving this vendor a story and paying my staff or paying this vendor and my administrative assistant uh, wouldn't be able to go home and pay our rent and things like that. So those are the, but you know, I like tough situation. Uh, just about everything is like chess to me. And uh, I told you about my mentor that taught me how to play chess. He always accused me of playing nip and tuck games where there's a lot of pressure <laughs> and one wrong move, the whole thing can fall down. So I was, I, I was always kind of excited about that. And even in, I tell people one of the reasons I like software engineering, because one uh, bit being in the wrong place, one bad line of code and the whole thing will come tumbling down and blow up. And I just like the challenge of, being perfect. I like that challenge. And and so I just took that attitude uh, into everything I did. Awesome. Well, t- tell, tell us what you're doing today. Well, today I have a opportunity. I'm running an opportunity zone uh, fund. Uh, well, uh, tell people that everyone knows what an opportunity zone yeah. is. So I want you to do, do yeah. like a quick Reader's Digest version on an opportunity zone to, to help everyone understand what it is you do. Yeah. On a high level, uh, back the 2017 uh, Jobs Act, uh, Jobs and Tax Cut Act created uh, IRS tax designation called Opportunity Zone, where if you have capital gains, instead of uh, writing a check out to the IRS, you can take that money and invest it in a company within uh, disadvantaged uh, uh, territory or community uh, zone that they call an Opportunity Zone. And what I like about that is that it's for the first time, I think it brings together under the free enterprise umbrella, people with money uh, to these uh, minority and poor communities where you can actually start businesses. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, uh, People that know me know that I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative, fiscal conservative. I believe in the free enterprise system. I'm not a big fan of handouts and uh, not that there's not places for nonprofit. I'm not a big fan of nonprofit. I think uh, what our community needs is 
uh, technology companies, financial companies, companies competing on the global scale uh, that's uh, bringing wealth and jobs and things into the uh, communities and, and, and advise teaching people how to uh, provide for themselves and generationally and, and creating a certain value of work. Uh, just, just some of the values that I think we need. And, and really, to be honest with you, Frank, it's, it's the same values that we, that I grew up with, that we grew up with. And, you know, uh, I didn't mention it before, but, you know, I grew up in a, I wasn't rich. We talked about growing up black in the uh, Jim Crow era, but I can honestly say that uh, probably 80 to 90% of my classmates went on to college. They got married and, and bought homes and created a certain amount of wealth. And so that's what I saw that works. And once again, I tell people, you know, I, I'm about business development and money and putting money in people's pockets. I'm about quality education. I'm about uh, strong families and I'm about faith. Now, here's the thing. I know that works. And what I see around, I, I haven't seen anything else that worked. Let me put it that way. And so that's why I'm out here trying to set an example of what I do. I know that works. I, I've seen it. I mean, we had in my class alone, I think it was, uh, and I think I remember number two and 65 students, uh, we had three surgeons uh, that was, these are kids that, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, it's hard for me to buy into it. And people don't often understand that uh, being black or being poor or anything is an excuse for bad behavior, an excuse for not succeeding, because I know better. And uh, I, uh, I'm well, that, that, that leads to my next question about, you know, the community service that you do. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the business and the opportunity zones and, and you're now the managing partner on that and, and bringing opportunity to the inner cities. Uh, but tell me about your impact in, in the community and, and the things that are important to you. Well, first thing you need to know, once again, going back, you know, well, let me say this. Uh, there's a poem out there that has the line, one of my favorite lines in a poem that says the child is the father of the man. And I, I'm just, when I was a child, first of all, we helped each other. And I'm from a culture where people don't say no. And so if they see a need, uh, they roll up their sleeves and they go about getting it done. They don't look for other people to get it done. And where I'm getting to is that I saw a lot of needs in our community, uh, whether it was financially and business-wise. That's why I started the company. Uh, I, I work with a lot of young men. Uh, gang bangers and things like that and i saw a need there so i went in you know i went into prison i did some uh working with gangs to help get them off the street and do some things uh faith-wise uh remember i've been a member of new salem missionary baptist church here in minneapolis for over 34 years and uh, i tend to whatever situation i'm in people tend to want me to contribute and because i i don't want to say no and like to say success. But long story short, they have served on the trustee board, uh, started up a charter school because I just believe, once again, uh, looking at the qualities and characters of the school system that I'm from, I, I know how to educate our children. And, and to be honest with you, as an aside, I don't trust educators to do it. And so I rolled up my sleeve and did it myself, uh, served on a charter school authorization board, uh, served on the STEM board at one of the local high schools here. Uh, my fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, was it really about community service and giving scholarships. So uh, I was very involved in that. And, and, and then perhaps, and I could go on a long time with this stuff because uh, I think that's what we were put here for. But just even something that's coaching my sons 
uh, a fifth grade baseball team. I just realized, you know, because I talked about uh, fraternities and scholarship. We do these backwards and we raise money, and it took a lot of time and money. And then I had an opportunity to coach my son's uh, uh, fifth grade uh, baseball. I'm like, hey, I can have more effect right here without all the overhead and rigmarole. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I just really have a lot of uh, faith and confidence in coaches and the impact that they have on these children. So I, I've just done a lot of stuff along those lines and probably could go on and on and on. But you well, I, I, I think the, the coaching that you did is is unbelievably valuable. Oh, yeah. You know, it is it, it instills. Um, it's another uh, it's another uh, adult figure in these young people's lives that has an influence. Yes. And you become an, and they talk about social media influences, which is BS. I, you know, it's ridiculous, but you actually have a personal influence. So you're your own little influencer in this little community of this team of young boys that you're going to instill on. And I remember my coaches growing up, my dad coached me, but then when I got too good, he, I moved up on the levels and I remember the coaches and they, one is he's 79 years old now. And, and he's doing some mentoring and some stuff in colleges and because of my college recruiting thing that I did back in the day and, and we're working and we just, and we have some, and we have a connection 50 years later on, on memories that we had. And, uh, and these are bonds that are strong yes. and the bonds that you help create will help strengthen communities. And I, right. I, we need more men like you that step up and do that. Uh, men of about that though, Frank, though, where I want us to go to is where we don't need more men like me to do that, where we're not relying on volunteer coaches. And you mentioned influences. Uh, my influence was my mom and my dad. Yeah. And I think that's part of the issue right now. Our kids' influences are other people besides their parents and and uh, people who really don't care about, don't have their best interests at heart. And there, so, I, I call yeah. it a vested interest. Right, right. You know, right. when you when you're the outsider, there's no vested interest. Right. There are some like you that that actually have a vested interest in what you do. Um, yeah, my dad was my hero and my baseball right. coach, and and he was there till I got really good and and. And I needed uh, I needed better better teachers and more teachers to help develop my skill sets. Uh, he was at every single game, football, baseball, wrestling. He was there. It was, but and it was it just on a side. When my college recruiting business that I ran, I can't tell you how many times that I've been. I was at an event and I was the only adult male supporting that that child in school. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and I tell people and I'm upfront about it. There's nothing that's going to replace a two-parent family. And we keep trying all these gimmicks. And, 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 and you know, I don't have anything against them. They have uh, uh, short-term benefits, and they're part of the short-term Band-Aid solution, like big brothers and big sisters and things. But if, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think these uh, organizations and government programs or any program are going to replace a strong family. And But we keep trying, and that's another reason I'm out here, too, trying to just let people know, yeah, it took us decades to uh, basically, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, split the family up. And however long it takes us to put the family back together, 
uh, we got to take the time to do it and realize that anything else we're trying, whether it has to do with gun violence or whatever, this gun violence is not going to stop. I mean, it's come on, who are we kidding? Uh, unless the reason I, without faith and strong parents and things like being the number one influence, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just about to say faith, you know, t- taking faith in God at a, at a school and, uh, I think it was a big mistake. And, uh, there's a, you know, the divorce rate is skyrocketing. Uh, you know, they, uh, just on an aside, I, I had an assistant working for me and, and she was a newlywed for six months and she was getting divorced and she, I go, you know, why don't you try sticking out? She goes, Oh, I'm young enough. I'll find somebody else. And so it's like they considered marriage as in dating. Right, right, right. right and right, no, right. it's, it's, there's, there's, but because there's no faith in there, they don't understand that, you know, when two people come together, they become closer to God and the closer to God they get, the closer they get, as opposed to uh, the, the not spiritual marriage. Oh, we're just going to get married for the sake of marriage. We think we love each other. Um, and so the, the impact that you can have on, on people telling your story. Right, right. Of 34 years of marriage, of being at the same church for 34 years, coaching your son's baseball team. Right. And our mutual friend Jack Brewer talks a lot about that of the fatherlessness in uh, in the, not only in the black community but in community in general and uh, and the, dis- the disintegration of of family right. and um, and so uh, you are a testament to to all that God's glory of of perseverance of hard work and self belief but knowing you know whether it's your angel or your your mom and dad and your support system that you had because you always felt loved and and you can't do nothing you there's nothing you can't do because you've been encouraged to do whatever it is you wanted to do instead of you know I think we need to inspire more people instead of telling people what they can't do let's inspire them on telling them what they what, what they you know there's nothing you can't do and it sounds like that's the that's message not- that you heard growing up exactly exactly and, and just Focusing on the being the best person you can be and yourself. And I tell people an interesting thing happens when you're focusing on being the best you can be. You don't have enough time to look around at other people and what they're doing and what the, how the world is. You're just focusing on uh, on being being the best you can be. But just a little small, you mentioned about taking faith out of school, and that is a good point. But I, I think even more important than that and what helped me, I had faith in my home. Uh, yeah. And, and the, it was the home and the family unit uh, that served as the basis of giving me what I needed and, and parents that loved me and everybody that and these are just smart people. A lot of them, uh, they weren't very educated, but they are the most wise people I've ever met in my life. And once again, that was my blessing also. So they just made sure that we children uh, stayed on the straight net well, as much as they could. I mean, we still was kids and we still were teenagers, and uh, but uh, they... Uh, set boundaries and set standards for us, uh, and it was imprinted in us as we went we we went through life. What would you say your number one obstacle you had to overcome, either personally or in business? That's a very very well. I, I think just my own lack of knowledge, I guess, and wisdom, uh, and just when you're young, discipline. Uh, I think uh, when you've been successful at just about everything you've tried in your life, there's a certain confidence and arrogance that'll get you in trouble after a while. And I guess the point I'm trying to make, uh, uh, my biggest obstacle in life uh, has always been me. 
and I, I never looked at it any other way um, because uh, I, I felt very early uh, that my success in life was between me and God and nobody else. And so that's why I never, you never hear me complaining about the way the world is and history and past and, and racism and stuff. I just, I mean, I, I listen to other people when they do it, but I, I felt at a very early age and accepted at a very early age that it was, it's about me doing what I'm supposed to do and my habits and my goals and my values and what time I got up and, and things like that. And, and well, how let me hard ask you I this. Spent. You've been married for 34 years. We were just talking about a high divorce rate. You know, every marriage has its ups and downs. Uh, what would you say is uh, the one thing that you and your wife can impart on someone, either a young couple or a couple who maybe has got that seven-year itch and they're struggling? What would you say to them to, uh, that, that maybe something that you and your wife did or do or have done to inspire uh, a young couple or the couple that's maybe going through some struggles? I, and I have to put it maybe in a couple of uh, uh, sections. First of all, uh, I always had standards when I was dating of things I accepted and things I didn't. And I look for a quality woman. So I, I guess uh, the first thing is find your quality mate, uh, someone who's just a good person. I think that's that's number one. And then uh, secondly, I think understand uh, it's a commitment that you make before God. And uh, that uh, you just got to be tough and committed to it. Uh, they're all challenging. And I tell everybody, I, I think what really helped, because we, we're young. And I mean, when you get married, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't even know yourself. You know, I mean, come on. And uh, we change over time. But I think what bound us together was the family. And I always were committed to staying with the mother of my child, the way to raise my children. Uh, I think that was one. And then growing up in a culture where people stayed married. I mean, I mean people didn't get divorced where I was from. And, and and once again, that commitment where you just get to a point where you realize that uh, you've gone through just about everything you can go through and you've made it. And you realize that uh, no matter what happened, you're going to see things through. And I think that takes a lot of time. And, and I guess finally, uh, Frank, just uh, growth as a man, I mean, uh, it's easy. Uh, and, and women, is, I told you I had six sisters and all the women at school liked me and everywhere I went. And uh, you can go into that situation uh, with with that expect kind of selfish expectation. Uh, but if you got a good stubborn wife like I have, <laughs> she's not going to let you get away with that. And she's going to teach you how to uh, get your uh, satisfaction uh, from. So let me ask you about this. You know, mm -hmm. finances play a big role, and get so you have you got to be get your spiritual house in order, but you also got to get your financial house in order. Yes. And coming in, whether you're newlyweds or you're maybe you're you're getting married later on in life, and you know you're bringing the two different places together. Talk a little bit about uh, keeping your financial house in order. Well, I think the number one thing is just to have a budget. I think uh, with also understand, I think it's helpful. And this is once again, getting back to the two parent family, it's a business unit and you got two revenue streams coming in and that kind of see you through things. And so uh, once you get on a budget and uh, you start establishing a good habit and, and what I always notice is that uh, no matter what the financial situation you thought you had, if you got a budget, 
And once you start putting numbers in, uh, to paper, you see it's not as bad as you, you thought it was and you can manage it. And so I think that's it. And I think once again, uh, my wife, uh, she, and I guess in most uh, marriages that I know of, they're the financial manager and they're the savers. And, and I, I always allowed her to have, which I knew she was, uh, I never worried about the fact that she had a little secret accounts and things like that. <laughs> and, and I knew it was for the family and that it, when, when it came to it. So I, I think those are the type of things. Uh, and then, you know, have a common, and this is where the support coming in at, uh, we, a lot of times, instead of going out uh, spending thirty, forty $40,000 on a new car, we'd invested in a uh, black business or something and have the common values and things like that with the understanding that uh, are you risking it all and it might have create a few moments. So just have, and, and, and I guess what it really boils down to is your perspective on money and understanding that. And I've always felt like, uh, Frank, I, I've never been, I don't know why, uh, very uh, motivated by a 20,000 square foot home or, or Rolls Royce, you know, and so I think that happened. I always looked at money as something that uh, you use to support and provide for your family and also to help other people. So having that common perspective on finances and money. Well, I, I, I have one more question and then anything okay. else that you think we missed, we can kind of kind of end on that. But I want to talk about communication mm -hmm. and communication in marriage. Because okay. I think that sets the tone for your kids and for, for business. And so how do you and Betty, do you guys have a weekly check-in or daily check-in where you just get your time? You guys are together to kind of check in and talk about whatever it is. You know, maybe there's some things that you guys that you needed to talk about. You had, what do you guys, how do you guys uh, kind of coordinate that, that so you guys are always on the same page? So walk wow. us, walk, walk, kind of tell everyone, again, you're, you're the example, 34 years of marriage, successful business person and entrepreneur and father and grandfather. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to hear, you know, from someone who's been successful at something so that others can aspire to that. And communication, I think, is lacking a lot in, in all sorts of relationships, whether it's marriages and friendships, businesses, there's not as much communication as should be. So share a little bit on how you and Betty go through the communication of being husband and wife. Okay, so when I when I talk to young men who are planning on getting married, uh, I don't set the expectation that we're going to be on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the challenge is, is how do you uh, keep functioning and love each other and work together when you aren't on the same page? But it does take a lot of a uh, 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 communication. I think, uh, especially when you got, uh, and you have to set aside time, especially when you have children in the house, but we're empty nesters now for the most part. And so we're constantly communication. And, and let's face it, it's a challenge. I mean, uh, I got this, I don't know, left brain, right brain or whatever. And I have a certain communication uh, where I, I'm a few words and stuff like that. And and my wife is, uh, uh, she's, she, she talks and makes sure you get her attention. So just working uh, and can just continue to talk. And I think just being open and honest. And I don't want people to set the expectation. Maybe there are people out there that, in the marriage that is. Uh, it's always a challenge communicating. I mean, men and women just look at things differently. And, 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 and a lot of it depends upon your family background. She's from a family of a lot of uh, uh, sisters and things like that. 
and they have a certain way of communicating uh, and then just figuring out their communication style. Uh, uh, there are some cultures that uh, they uh, talk in questions and just understanding that and just being patient and listening. And you're always, uh, I, I think, on a, whether it's marriage or life or whatever you do, you always have to constantly be circumspect and ask yourself uh, how you can do better in what you're doing. And I guess, uh, Frank, uh, once again, uh, maybe my personality is self-responsibility, self-accountability. If something, I don't care what it is, if something isn't going right, my first question is, how, what do I need to do to make it better? And once again, I think my wife and I, we're just good two people. We're just two good people committed to each other, committed to our kids and our grandkids. And everything else is secondary. And we know we got to go through it and work it out. And, you know, be honest with you, growing up in a, uh, a two-parent family and seeing my mom and dad work it out and see that their number one priority is the family and not necessarily their little personal type things that they have with each other. And also seeing my mom and dad uh, redo their vows after 50 years of marriage, after all wow. the uh, everything they went through. And so you, you just have a good role model and example. And uh, I, I think one of the issues why people are not staying uh, married nowadays that they were not as blessed as I was to grow around, go about, grow up in an environment where people stay together and raise their children, regardless of what the heck was going on. And once again, that's a certain maturity that comes to all of us. It should, unless we fools. Uh, there's a certain maturity that comes to all of us as we grow older uh, that you can bring to bear. And once again, awesome. that, yeah, and that's the help that uh, my wife is just a good, beautiful person, and she's. Uh, age like mine. So you married up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God bless me. <laughs> you know, the scriptures say a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so <laughs> I, I think that. And But once again, uh, when I talk to young men, I'm, I don't I don't try to make sure I, I try to make sure I let them know this is not no romantic novel you're getting into. Uh, this is work. And it's not about your happiness. And it's about you get your happiness in doing and, you, and executing your responsibilities and things like that. And and, and, and ultimately what it does, uh, it matures you. And looking back on it, and, and you know, to be honest, I fought it a lot. But looking back on it, it really makes you a man around you out. Uh, I tell everybody, and I'm not trying to be flippant, uh, single a single man can't tell me anything, basically. I mean, it, it sounds kind of flippant. Uh, you can't tell me anything. You really can't. Uh, uh, you got to be in a relationship. That's what really makes you a man. And not by how many women you got and how many kids you got by different women. It's just hanging in there and, and, and doing the right thing and taking care of your family. Awesome. Well, uh, it's. Uh, I think we're over a little bit of time. We, uh, we You and I always have this issue when we, when we talk. We always run a little long. So what, what, if there's something that you that we hadn't touched on or we didn't talk about, if you you know the the, the floor is yours, Lacey, and and kind of uh, share share something that maybe we hadn't touched on and that you think would be vital for everyone to hear, well, especially going well, into Christmas. Right. I, I guess I'll just reiterate two things. Uh, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and the reason some people are successful, in my opinion, some aren't is we bring a different perspective, we bring a different attitude, and we react differently. And we're just tenacious about what we're doing. 
and we don't give up and we don't blame other people for our situation. We don't blame history. We look at ourselves and I, the way I put it, uh, we need to spend more time looking in the mirror because I can honestly say that at this point in my life, any issues that I had that was uh, long-term or negative, it's because of something I did I didn't do. And I think if we all took that responsibility with help, uh, the other thing is that just the uh, solutions, I'm about uh, helping people and changing our communities. And uh, I'm not about band-aid types, quick fixes. I think ultimately that in these communities, that like the one I live in, that we're going to have to start our own businesses and create our own wealth and generational wealth. I think we're going to have to start uh, making sure we have quality education in these communities. Well, when our children graduate from high school, they're reading in high school level, they're comprehending at high school level and reading in math and science, and that they have they value education to the point that they go on the post-secondary and they look at that as a key to provide it for themselves and their family. I think we need to really, really understand from a societal or cultural level that the family is the basic building block of any society. And I, I hope I'm wrong, but all these issues we're seeing, we're throwing money at and coming up with these programs, they would never, ever, ever replace a two-parent family, whether you love and provide protection and support for our children. In fact, if I had to say anything, is that I think we've gotten to the point as adults, there's no such thing as youth problems. It's, it's, it's adults that's the issue. We're not doing our job. So it's just focus on family and doing our jobs and raising our children well. And then just finally just living a life of faith, something you can fall back on, a moral compass, uh, something that takes the uh, focus off of yourself and you being the center of the universe and understand that there's something bigger and better out there. And there is such things like karma and things like that. You kind of reap what you sow. And uh, I think those are the things that I would leave our audience with and uh, just keep going and uh, never give up. And finally, uh, when you get to my stage in life, you think about the uh, parable of the talents and what kind of return on the investment uh, you want to uh, give God for what he's done for you and what he's provided for you and everything and how blessed your life has been. And so uh, that's what... Uh, I would uh, lead the audience with and the fact that anyone out there, and I guarantee this, you can be anything you want to be in life. I don't care what, don't let it. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this, Frank, is because especially our young people, it just bothers me that all day, every day, they listen to how unfair the world is and how racist the country is and how slavery is so unfair. And I'll just leave it with this uh, and this where good parent to come in. My dad told two things and this is why i was working with my dad uh we talk so i talk about how unfair things are. my dad says son uh fair is a place where they raise pig i don't want to hear about that and then uh <laughs> i do remember talking about because you know back in those days once again the civil rights movement uh, there was this pet phrase that uh, black people had to work twice as hard as white people and all that stuff and my dad he just put that in perspective to, to me also he said son look work is good and so what you're telling me, they're making you do something that's good twice as much as they do. What are you complaining about? And so that's the kind of attitude that I've taken on in life. And I always take, I always be positive, And I always hold myself accountable uh, for, for what happens to me, my family, and my loved ones. So 
Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on Bright Lights today, Lacey. You are an inspiration for many, and uh, you are definitely a blessed man, and I'm a blessed man to call you friend, and and thank you for spending about 90 minutes with us and, and sharing with the audience the Lacey Johnson story. I, I know you have inspired many. Thank you, Frank, and you have done so also. And so let, let's end this mutual admiration club, and we'll do it again. Uh, in fact, I might want to make a tradition. Hope to see you soon, and let's work on some. We were already working on some things. So thank you, Frank. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Uh, I'm kind of jealous with the Italian uh, buffet and the seafood. And I'll send you all the videos and all the pictures. <laughs> yeah, tease me with it. Okay, thanks, Frank. All uh, right, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.